Hello and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. On this Bad Beats episode, we will explore the human side of real estate investing with a seasoned pro about to make the legendary worst deal of their life. A deal isn't just the investment, it is also the person. Stay with us and learn what it takes to be the best investor. Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Royal-Smith, owner of Royal Legal Solutions, home for everything real estate asset protection. I'm here with my good friend, Matthew. Matthew um, is a real estate genius of sorts, um, but not immune to the human errors of life that can cause us to all have sorrow and lose money. Well, Matthew, um, thanks for coming on the show today. I really think that we learn the most from our mistakes uh, than anything else. And so today we're going into a, a bad beats or, you know, worst deal episode. And so um, what, do, what do we need to learn about you today, Matthew, to be able to have like a good background of, you know, who you are before you got into this deal and, um, you know, what do we need to know? Yeah. Uh, well, it's, uh, it's pleasure being on the show, man. Excited to chat some real estate, you know, talk about, uh, the times that I was probably crying in my beer, wishing that I wasn't in real estate and I'm damn glad that I kept pushing forward. So I know we'll get into that here, uh, in a few minutes. Um, for those that don't know who I am, I am a real estate investor. I invest in Northern California, um, here in Sacramento's home base for me, but I, invest Sacramento to Silicon Valley. So I do stuff out in the Bay Area as well, which our market is insane. Um, and I started putting a lot of time and energy more into the Bay Area deals being that, you know, one profit margin on a Bay Area deal just due to price point uh, is like doing four or five out here in Sacramento. Um, I initially started as a real estate agent. So I got right out of college, uh, paid a bunch of money for a piece of paper that I ultimately decided I did not want to use, didn't want to jump into corporate America, didn't want to put my, my fate, my future in somebody else's hands and really wanted, you know, the freedom and flexibility uh, that goes along with entrepreneurship. I wanted unlimited earning potential, no ceiling on what I could make and achieve. I wanted to obviously be able to help people in the process and, you know, help them achieve their goals. Uh, but I also wanted that sexiness of, you know, the lifestyle and being able to spend your time with who you want, when you want, where you want. And I also didn't want to just collect a paycheck. I wanted to actually be in a space that I could generate real wealth in the process. And when I was doing research after college, it kept coming back to real estate, real estate, real estate. So I jumped into real estate, um, you know, full steam ahead about seven or so, eight years ago, and uh, built up a real estate team for the Wall Street Journal top 1,000 two years uh, back to back. Um, simultaneously, I started flipping houses. I started buying rental properties over the last, you know, five or so years. I've flipped over 150 houses, have built a seven-figure rental portfolio uh, that continues to grow and expand. And uh, recently, over the last few years, have really started getting into the education, um, information product space of teaching people how to flip with through courses, direct mail, different things like that. So that's really been a passion of mine of, one, I think, Everybody has the one track mindset of like, how do I fill my own cup first and make as much money as I can? And then when you get there, you're like, ah, this is great, but it's not that rewarding, that fulfilling um, and money isn't everything. And how can we give back more? And so that's kind of what led me into the education and information space. Um, and there's been many majestic failures along the way. One of them, you know, obviously going to be sharing with you guys, but that's a little uh, background information in a very uh, quick two minute you know, synopsis. Yeah, man, before we jump into the worst deal, you brought up something about like uh, making the money 
and then being like, oh, shit, that's not really it. That wasn't the thing. I thought it's the thing I thought I was seeking, but that's not really the thing I was seeking. Like, what was your real, what's your realization, you know, about that from where you, what did you think before and, and what do you believe now? Yeah, for me, it was how do I get to, you know, that level that ultimately I feel is going to equal freedom and fulfillment. And as I, you know, started getting deeper down that path, um, I actually joined a mastermind group, which is, it's a millionaire mastermind group. And I wasn't a millionaire at the time, but I kind of weaseled my way in and through a couple of different contacts and mentors got invited to this group of um, about 15 guys that were, you know, masterminding and some of these guys net worth hundred plus million dollars. And um, so I'm thinking, oh man, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be around all of this money, all of this wealth. I'm going to, you know, find a way to go from a millionaire to get into that, you know, deck a millionaire and all that kind of stuff. And when I got into the room and I was about 25 at this time, so I'd had some good success flipping some houses, buying a few rental properties, um, you know, building my real estate team. And I quickly learned when getting in the room that uh, the conversation around money was actually very, very small. It was more about not just being a millionaire financially and being bankrupt in your health and your, you know, contribution and giving back and being a good spouse or partner or business owner, or you know, giving to charities or, you know, living life to the fullest. It was about living like a millionaire and all of those pillars. Can you pinpoint exactly, you know, what it is that, that caused you to have that change in your belief system? I think it was around money. Yeah, for me, it was really, it was a, an event that I went to. And mind you, when I got into real estate, I was 21. I was right out of college. I was broke. I was living at home with my dad. I was just trying to find a way to, you know, get some momentum behind myself financially. And so the one track focus was how do I make as much money as I can make? How do I create the lifestyle that I, you know, had envisioned in my head and bring all of these dreams to reality? Many, which I were, you know, was thinking were going to be fulfilled through this, you know, uh, this means of having as much money available to myself as possible. And it wasn't a, until about, you know, three or four years after being in the industry of flipping some houses, buying some rentals, uh, building my real estate team that, you know, I was starting to get some good momentum behind myself financially. And uh, one of my mentors invited me to uh, this little mastermind event with him and some of his accountability partners and, you know, mentors in his network. And this was, you know, a group of individuals that had net worths of, you know, hundred plus million dollars, and, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I'm salivating at the fact of I'm going to be in a room of these individuals that I'm going to be able to get golden nuggets and wisdom and opportunities and doors are going to open and relationships are going to happen where, you know, I'm going to figure out how to make as much money as I possibly can. And uh, long story short, when I got into the room and spent the weekend with these guys, the conversation around money uh, was actually very, very small. And really the, the leading conversations were around other areas of what they felt led to and meant to be a wealthy and rich individual. And, you know, I'd always seen a lot of people that were financially extremely abundant, but they were bankrupt in their health. They were bankrupt in how they showed up for their wives or their husbands. They were bankrupt in giving back to people. They were bankrupt as parents. They were bankrupt in, you know, how they led their life and they had a lot of money to show for it, but a lot of the other stuff was missing. Whereas these individuals were living like millionaires in all areas of their life that were important to them. And they were very intentional about it and they were having conversations around it. And it really opened up my 
mindset to the fact that um, one, it's not all about money. It, it's a, it's a part of the equation. It's in a variable in the equation, but at the end of the day, it doesn't make up the entire equation. And uh, when I was, you know, 25 years old, the only conversation and the only, you know, thing that I was leading with all the time was how do I make more money instead of how do I become somebody that attracts having more wealth and more abundance and more freedom and more money. And, and money wasn't just the answer to that. And so that really over the last five years has led me to leading a completely different lifestyle that has a lot of diversity in it when it comes to the way I go about creating my own wealthy lifestyle. Cause I believe everybody's got a different definition of wealth. Um, whether that's, you know, barely making ends meet every month, but you get to travel and, you know, live anywhere in the world and have fun, whether that's being a stay at home mom and spending as much time as you want with your kids, whether that's having a hundred million bucks in the bank and, you know, bringing in a hundred thousand a month in passive income, everybody has a different definition of what that means. Um, but at the end of the day, let's be honest, you know, money is what makes the world go round, And uh, it still is something that should be uh, a focus and an intention for people so that they can go out and design all of those other pillars of your life. But if all you do is focus on that one thing, um, you're going to, you know, you're not going to be fulfilled by that. And I, I realized that, you know, when I hit a certain milestone of making a certain amount of money and having a certain level of net worth that at the end of the day, you know, I still woke up the same every single day. I still, you know, put my pants on the same, you know, way every single day. And I still went after and chased the things that I was going to chase every day. So it wasn't that end all be all milestone. And um, that's something that I think, you know, we've all heard other people say, but until you experience it, um, it, it's one of those things where it doesn't really click. And that was the first time that I'd really uh, been exposed to the idea that, you know, being a millionaire in all areas of your life is more important than being just a millionaire in your bank account. Yeah. And, and that really relates to is like fundamental issues of character, right? Like the more of these other pillars that you've actually established in your life, the more stable you are as a person because you have relationships with others and you take care of yourself and health is important to you. So then, you know, something like can, can actually happen that's catastrophic to your financial situation. And the people that are strong in all those other areas, they're able to lean on those strengths to be able to help them recover. If you talk to people that are really avid athletes, for example, they can have huge detrimental things happen to their life. You know what they do? They lace up their shoes and they go for a run because their athleticism is like the foundation of what they know is I can hit my run, I'm going to feel better, and then I can take an action of what yeah. I need to go next. So people that are really strong with their wealth, um, but they're poor in the other areas, they're actually really fragile. Because if anything yeah. happens to the wealth, now their whole life is gone. Like literally they had zero life except for this one thing. And if anything happens to that, I'm over. Right. And so I think that there's either, there's another discussion that's, uh, you know, on top of this is saying, okay, wealth isn't everything, but actually wealth might just be um, a part of something that's so much bigger and that you can build your strength as a person um, in all of these other areas that don't cost you anything. They just cost you time and attention and your, uh, your dedication into building those up. Um, and well, what I found, I don't know if this is true for you, Matthew, but I found that the more that I've worked with people, you know, over the years and coaching with them um, about real estate, you know, I'm also like an attorney and whatnot with what I do as a professional speaking, but um, that the, the people that could actually build these other pillows of their life first and focus on that as, you know, then the money piece of it actually became really simple. 
because they were able to attract great people into their life and they were actually to be really strong to weather the bad pieces that are going to happen. Like we're going to come in to your story here and I can almost guarantee even before I hear the story that what allowed you to be able to bounce back from having something that was really detrimental happened to you financially wasn't anything more than the fact of, well, I have all these other pieces, these other tools that I relied on that helped me do that. And I had spent time cultivating those over the years. So something bad can happen and I can weather the storm. Probably, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you hit, hit the nail on the head. I, I could tell you that uh, if what happened happened, which I'll share, and I didn't have all of the other areas that counterbalanced the, you know, the extreme of that situation, uh, who knows how I would have responded or where I would have, you know, ended up being that, you know, at the end of the day, we all face extreme, you know, adversity in our life in some capacity, whether it's someone passing away close to you, whether it's a financial hardship, whether it's a health hardship, you know, whether it's some challenge in your business or your kids or whatever it may be, we all face that kind of stuff. But without some of the other areas of life being as abundant as they were, um, I probably would have been in that valley a whole lot longer than, you know, getting back on the saddle and trekking to the summit again. Yeah. Yeah, man. Cause that's like, that's where the real strength comes from is having like a diversity of tools to pull onto. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's gotta be. And the cool part about it is what I always thought was a cool part about it is like most of the time people say, I don't have money, so I can't be happy or I can't be relaxed or I can't be peaceful. When the reality is, is that being is a state that you choose, right? And I can choose to be with my family and feel connected to them. And I can, I can choose to be attentive to what my body needs and go to go at, to work out. And those are things that don't cost you anything except for the choice to go do it. Um, and then the, the very idea of saying that I can create a huge amount of wealth to be a millionaire in nine pillars of my life, you know? And then there's just this one last one that's called wealth that'll just happen in its own time because I'm such a badass and everything else that I'm doing that it's inevitable. I know, yep. I'll just put attention into it and I'll build it just like I did everything else. It's so true. I mean, it, here, here's the way I think of it. It's like, what, what is wealth? And right. I said, everybody's got a different definition of it, but if you were to strip away all of your material possessions, right, all of your money and get to the root of what's left after that, you'd have your health, you'd have your family, your friends, right. Your network, your relationships, you'd have freedom, and money is only a form of energy that ultimately, and this is just my opinion, that just gives you choice, right? And choice ultimately gives us the options to be able to do what we want when we want with who we want. So I think that, yes, you know, money is a, an extremely important part of it. But when we get to the root of like what is most important about this crazy life that we're living, at least while we're on this planet, you know, it's all of the other things. And if you stay only focused and your identity is so wrapped up just in the money, um, you're ultimately not going to lead to a fulfilling life, which is ultimately what I believe everybody wants, right? Is that happiness, that fulfillment. And that's why, you know, if you've ever seen the documentary Happy, some of the poorest nations on the planet are rated as having the happiest people. Well, they've obviously figured something else out psychologically that allows them to feel that without having the material possessions, without having the money. Do I believe though, based on you know, the world we live in today, that having money gives you more options to amplify those things and to make a bigger impact? 100% yes. But spiritually, you know, uh, when you go internally to you know, say that money is only going to make you happy, 
uh, I, I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done there. If that's the psychology that you're sticking to, um, and using as a motivator for why you go out and do what you do. Yeah, man. And, and I would even, I would even, I agree with you. And I would even pile on to the top of it that the guys that I see that they, when people tell me and say, you know what I'm about, I'm all about my money all the time. I actually look at those people and say, man, maybe that guy's actually a little weak, you know, like maybe he's actually a little weak. Maybe he's actually a little fragile. How is that person going to respond if, if when things get tested, you know, what happens if he loses? Is that a guy that bounces back from a loss? Or is that a guy that just crumbles because the moment he goes zero there, he's zero everywhere and he's got no other resources, you know, to pull back on. And so like being wealthy in these other areas, I think is, is really what can pull you back strong. So, I mean, let's get into, let's jump into the story, Matthew. I'm really excited. I'm all amped up. Let's you know, do it. To talk about, to back, talk about this and to pick this story apart and who you, what's going on with you um, before you get into it. So take us back to the very beginning before you jump into this deal. Um, you know, what's going on and what does that deal look like to you at the outset? What attracted you to it? Yeah. So, um, this, you know, I'd been flipping houses for, you know, about six years now and, you know, I've done high volume in certain years. And for me, it was starting to think as the business owner of how can I do less volume and make the same amount of money or, or more. And, I've been doing a majority of my flipping at this time in the Sacramento region, which our price points are a little bit, you know, lower, at least in California terms compared to the Bay and LA and some of these other areas. So a lot of my flips were in, let's say the three to 400, 500 range. And, um, one of my mentors started getting out and flipping out in the Bay area, doing one, two, $3 million type flips where, you know, some of the projects scope of work wise were a little bit bigger. Um, and I guess could be considered a little bit more of redevelopment than just remodeling or renovating. And, um, the profit margins were massive. I mean, we're talking two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollar profit margins on just one deal. And so that's kind of got sexy to me. And I started, you know, paying attention to what she was doing and who she was networking with and some of the things that they were up to. And I said, uh, you know, why can't I do that? Right? Like let's, let's, it's time to take that next step in my, my flipping journey in my career. And, um, I had actually had a couple of successful ones, uh, that were six figure profits out in, uh, the Bay area. And there was this one deal that was in the Berkeley Hills, uh, overlooking Golden Gate Bridge, downtown San Francisco, downtown Berkeley, downtown Oakland, million dollar view, on this really steep hillside. And um, this house was, you know, pretty dilapidated. It was inherited through um, a family member. And uh, I ended up, you know, underwriting this deal and looking at this deal going, man, you know, this grandier vision of, I can add a third story here. And I know that in the Bay Area, in this neighborhood, the price per square foot of selling this house was about $900 to $1,000 a square foot. And I knew that I could, being that I'm a partner in a construction company, build in the range of, let's say, three to 320, 300 to 325 luxury-wise uh, per square foot. So there was a good chunk of margin I could make up by adding, let's say, another story and another 1,000 square feet. The comp supported it. Um, and, you know, there was – it was just that mindset of – I can add some massive value here for some appreciation through that particular, 
you know, channel of um, redevelopment. And so the profit margin on it was in the 250 to 300 range. And uh, it was one of those things where I had one of my private lenders who really wanted to get their capital deployed and they didn't want their money sitting on the sidelines. So it seemed like the right fit for the right deal uh, on paper, things looked good, but it was also one of those things where it was redevelopment. I mean, there was stuff that we were going to have to do architectural designs, engineering designs. We were going to have to, you know, sit in plan review with the city. And this was a city that I hadn't flipped in yet. So there was a, a, a handful of unknowns, but I just said, you know what, like I can figure this out along the way. And there was another person competing for the property. And mind you, on the normal flips that I do, which are, you know, pretty simple compared to this kind of project, it was something where I'm always moving fast. One of my value propositions is we close in seven days, right? And so on this particular deal, um, I felt the pressure to close quickly. And um, there were still some things that necessarily weren't fully flushed out. and The due diligence wasn't 100% completed on. But I figured because I had enough profit margin to work with, if, you know, some things happen, we had a little wiggle room, right? At least that's what I told myself. So I ended up closing on the deal. Uh, we started, you know, working through the deal and uh, we started, you know, learning some things pretty quickly on the deal. So it sounded like the, this is one of those uh, situations you come in and you say, hey, listen, you know, I, I got special knowledge about how I can build here and I know what's going on in the marketplace. So yeah, why don't I go ahead and, and jump into it? Like, is it, do you feel at that moment, it's almost like a, how can I possibly lose type of situation? At that time it was, yeah. Um, being one that there was, you know, you got $250,000 of profit margin. And that was me feeling like I was being somewhat conservative on, you know, some of the, the numbers. Um, Cause I'm always a big believer in underestimate what you can exit it for overestimate what the rehab is going to be um, and overestimate your holding time frame. Um, just to leave yourself some buffer on all of those, uh, all of those numbers. And on this particular deal, and it's crazy. I've, you know, I've lost on three deals, four, three or four deals of the 150 plus that I've done. Um, and mind you, some of them been like, you know, a thousand bucks or at the most like five or $8,000. Um, this one ended up being a, an outlier and a great learning lesson. Uh, but I felt very confident going into it and I felt like I had that knowledge. And at the same time, I also knew it was somewhat of a different arena because we were, you know, adding square footage. And here's the difference on this deal is we really, um, what I didn't account for was the fact that there was a third party in this, uh, in this scenario that ultimately I didn't take into account, which was the city. And when you start going in and working with the city, at the end of the day, they ultimately can be the, you know, the decision maker, the one who really throws a wrench in your plans. And so I didn't account for a lot of the times, one, the timing issues of now working with the city and how long they can take, um, but also some of the things that they can, you know, bring the iron fist down on and create a lot of problems unless you want to sit there and pay attorney fees and fight with them. So those were some of the things that I just never had accounted for on the front end of this. And when I got into the deal and we started working through some of the things, uh, we quickly learned that there was some stuff that was beyond the normal scope of just a cosmetic or even an extensive 
flip. This was a full-on redevelopment, which is a completely different arena when we're you know talking about quote unquote flipping houses. Mm. So when you when you get into like a new deal like this, because there was a couple of flags for you, right? That says this is a little different than something I've done before. Did you bring anybody else in? Um, that was experienced with that particular type of deal? Or did you only find out that it was really different enough after you're already into it? Yeah, after I was already into it. And, you know, that was one of the big learning lessons of, um, I've always been a big believer of like, surround yourself with people that have been there, done that, have the experience, even if you have to cut them in, you know, whatever that may be, because then you'll have, one, the confidence to know that you're going to do it right. Uh, Two, you'll be able to, you know, leverage their experience, their wisdom, their connections. And, and three, uh, that I would rather have the foundational, you know, education to do it the right way so that I can complete that project the way it needs to be completed and know what the right way of doing it is moving forward on all the other deals, even if I had to pay them. I didn't do it on this deal. Uh, and so there were now looking back a handful of things that, I knew in my gut I should have done and I didn't do. And I let my ego really get in the way of going like, I can figure this out. I've been through 150 deals. Like I'm good. I got this. And uh, really there were a lot of things that I should have pulled people in on and or really uh, pushed into from a due diligence perspective well beyond moving forward. So mistake number one was not giving myself enough time for due diligence. Because normally I felt that pressure of going like, my proposition is I close quickly and that's one of the reasons why I get a discount. Well, in this particular scenario, uh, there were a handful of things that I should have done in my due diligence period before I closed escrow that I didn't and just assumed that you know we had plenty of room and the ability to get around these things after the fact. Uh, should they arise, which I didn't know what I didn't know at that time. And that was, uh, you know, one of the first areas that I, I, I really had missed the boat on. Is that, um, is that one of those scenarios where you're kind of struggling against saying, um, you know, is my gut telling me something here or am I just kind of afraid with the deal? It, it was definitely that inner dialogue going back and forth. And it's funny because all of the times that I've made mistakes in my life, uh, there's a book that I really love by um, Susan Scott. It's called Fierce Conversations. And one of the things that she says in that book is, um, don't listen to your gut, obey your gut. And I was listening to my gut, but I wasn't ultimately like obeying those feelings that I had in my gut. And you know, it's crazy. Some of the data behind your, your, your gut is like that inner intuition, right? And like the way our body, are designed uh, that gut feeling we all know usually when we've made a mistake it's like oh, I knew I shouldn't have done that I felt it and I, I did it anyways and this was one of those scenarios where there was a couple times in the process where I'm like oh, I don't know but I kept justifying why I could keep moving forward with the deal and why it wasn't that big of a deal and why I could figure it out and why I didn't need to consult with this person and because I had all this experience and da 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 when ultimately I was stepping into a new arena that I should have, you know, checked my ego at the door at, done a little bit more due diligence on, pulled the right people in, taken the necessary time to flush out some of those, you know, red flags and question marks and gray areas that I didn't have clarity in. And uh, I continued to move forward anyways. 
what do you do? Like, is there cheap ways that you could involve people early on in that deal? Like, let's say you're, you know, you're having this debate with your gut, right? Like, am I just scared? Is this new? And I'm just kind of being fearful of it. Or is this really my gut trying to tell me like, Hey bro, you're not really good for this. And you know, you're not, but it's like, you're not really wanting to believe that with your head. Right. Is there like a cheap way to get people like involved? Like sometimes, you know, when I've run into situations like that, like I pulled in, tried to some other type of professional and pay them hourly to be like, Hey, just check me on this and make sure this is right. Even though it's going to cost me 500 bucks or something like that, or a thousand bucks to have it. It's cheaper than having a partner come in, which can be its own difficult piece. But you know, is there something like that that you do whenever you're butting up against that even now or? Oh, oh yeah. 100%. Like I, I've never have an issue paying somebody for their expertise. Um, what kind of people do you look for? Like in that scenario that you were just going through, right? If you could go back and like be the, you know, the angel on the shoulder, it'd be like, Matthew, go <laughs> yeah, in, right. and go and hire this person. Like, what would that have been? Matthew? Well, number one, I have such an extensive network of amazing real estate investors that I could have easily humbled myself and, and just went and asked a handful of people that already do this. So that I could have, and I could have gotten that feedback and advice for free. So that's where I'm one kick myself, Ooh. right? Who do you know in your, your network or who do you know who knows somebody in your network that you could, you know, tap into their wisdom and experience without having to go spend a bunch of money right out of the gate. Oh. But then secondarily is, you know, uh, definitely, you know, finding individuals that, you know, can consult with you on a certain aspect of the process that you aren't as comfortable or familiar with. That's and a very expensive piece of humble pie. Dude, I mean, I don't even think we've really jumped into how much money I lost on this deal, but it was over $180,000. And, yeah. you know, you, people are probably going, wait, $250,000 profit margin, he loses $180,000. Like, that's, that's a pretty big swing right there. And uh, that's, you know, when you're playing at the million dollar and up price point, when you're talking about holding costs, and when you're talking about missing things like this, um, that I missed, those things add up very, very quickly. And so it was definitely one of the biggest learning lessons in my career. It was one of the most trying times of my career. Um, I mean, mentally, I, you know, I've always been somebody like, ah, I don't get stressed out. Oh, you know, I don't get depressed. Oh, I don't, right. And um, I would say there were many sleepless nights, uh, a lot of anxiety. Um, there was, you know, a lot of, I guess, I don't want to say shame, but more so of like, just really upset at myself that, um, I didn't do some of the things that I did. Uh, you know, it was a confidence hit. It was, I mean, so I could go on and on. It was, it was, a, it was a tough deal. And yet looking back now and the experience that I gained from that, the knowledge that I gained from that the resources and some of the connections I gained from that um, have really set me up for some massive success that I've had moving forward and where I'm at today of playing at a higher level in development and some of the things that I'm working on right now with some much, much bigger projects than this one was. So um, this, you know, if for everybody that is wondering what that next level is for them, um, just know that what you're doing right now was once a stretch for you. Like it was once something that you wanted to do, but didn't know how you were going to do it and didn't know if you had the ability to do it, but you're doing it. So uh, that was one of the things for me where I really 
told myself like, this is a part of the process. If I really want to get to being a hundred millionaire, if I want to get to building a sky, uh, uh, you know, a high rise building in the skyline of Sacramento or my area, if I want to do some of these things, um, was it an expensive lesson? Yes. But the fact that I'm in the batter's box is the only way I'm going to get on base is the only way I'm going to round the bases and score runs. If I'm a spectator, I'm not getting paid. The players are the one who gets paid, right? And no player do I know that steps into the batter's box, that's a thousand. They strike out too. And so justifying that and kind of telling myself like, you know, this is all part of the process. Even when I was going through it, it's hard, right? You can tell yourself that stuff and yet it doesn't always sink in or it doesn't really I resonate. doubt you would have believed that in the moment. If somebody yeah. was like, oh yeah, Matthew, don't worry about it. You got to step up to the plate. This is you step up to the plate. You would probably tell the person to go to hell. I just yeah, lost $180,000 on a flip and I did it and it was boneheaded the way I did it because I yep. didn't ask people to go with it. And I'm pissed at myself for doing that. I'm like, that's really the internal dialogue at the time. But there's, 100%. there's, a, there's, a, there's an awesome piece to it, right? Which is you hit these dips, right? Like the, you had a big dip here. And then there's something that you did in, in that process that allowed you to, to, to rebound like into what it is you're going on. So what are you doing you know, when that piece happens, which could happen to any of us? It's really outside of our control to a large extent. It's an illusion of control that we have over these deals. Right. right? So if that happens, what is it that you do in, you know, what is that? Um, is that like a process? You're like, Hey, I went back to my routines, you know, of like, here's what I do every day to, to start yeah. rebuilding the momentum of what you need to do to take yourself from, you know, reassembling the pieces internally to help you move forward. Or what does that look like? Yeah. You know, um, for me, I, I was definitely in a funk. I'll say that. And, you know, you try and just keep going, moving forward. That's the one thing that I could say is, you know, no matter if you're depressed, if you're, upset at yourself, you're frustrated, like the one thing you can do to make sure that you eventually get out of it is just to keep taking a small step forward every single day. It may not be the big steps that you want to be taking. It may not be your best step that you're taking, but you got to at least keep moving. You can't stay stagnant. Um, so that's one thing that helped for sure. The fact that I had an accountability group, um, I've been in an accountability group with five, five other guys for the last three and a half years. Um, from all around the country. We get on a call every single week. I just had it actually right before I jumped on this podcast for one hour. And we, one, hold each other accountable to the goals that we set every single quarter to keep the needle moving forward. But we also really support each other when we're going through some shit, whether it's, you know, stuff that you're going through with your wife, with your kids and your business. And so the one thing that I was glad I did and wish I also would have done sooner was be extremely vulnerable and open in sharing what I was going through. I ultimately did end up sharing it and they helped me through it um, and gave me great advice and, you know, great support, but I wish I would have done it sooner. And it's hard when the wound is open to want to get that feedback to you're not always in a place to receive it. And you're not always in a place to be ready to do what needs to be done in order to get out of it. Um, but if I could have shortened that window up, I definitely would have. And you, you hit the nail on the head. For me, it was, it was routine. Like I track my habits obsessively. I mean, I have, I created a freaking planner for it. I mean, I started a couple of years ago in an Excel sheet. I sell and, and, and have a planner that um, is not a, it's only, not only a day planner, but more it's an awareness tool around the habits and the routines that I know 
help Matt show up every single day at the highest level. And when I realized that I was completely out of my routine, I wasn't doing my early morning wake-ups. I wasn't doing my meditation. I wasn't doing my journaling. I wasn't doing my, you know, accountability check-ins and a lot of the things that have served me at a high level. Um, that brought my awareness back to those things and helped me get back in that momentum phase. So, so that was really, really important for that. Um, I want, and one of the things that, you know, I did that I don't know if we touched on, which I like to real fast is to really reflect on like, what could I have done differently? And I racked my brain over this over and over and over again. And on this particular deal, when it comes to development stuff, um, it's not flipping. It's, it's, it's ultimately, ultimately not flipping. It is development. And there are a lot of different hoops and a lot of different timelines and a lot of different processes that go with development. So what I had to really understand and realize was the fact that I was no longer doing that particular niche of real estate investing. I was trying to develop a house and I was trying to create and build something that wasn't just a flip that I was going to get in and out of. And so that was number one. Number two was the due diligence side to really take my time and be willing to walk away from the deal. If I didn't do the things that I know I needed to do, if that person didn't want to let me do it, then so be it. I'm not going to put myself at risk like that again. And when you're talking about development, there are things that you really got to dig into, you know, the, the nitty gritty of the, the fine print. And as an attorney, I know you know this, right? Of, you know, there's a lot of stuff that um, can be hidden in some of those things that if you don't take into account, one little thing could completely throw off the entire deal. And so on this particular case, uh, there were things that I didn't go down to the city and really dig in with the building departments, with the planning departments, with their engineers, and understand that, you know, based on this particular property being that it was on a hillside, and we were going to have to bore down into the ground because we were on in, you know, California earthquakes are a big deal. Um, going down into the ground, deep into the ground and boring in and then pouring new foundation and then now letting the foundation sit for six months. So I couldn't even, I couldn't even like start framing. I couldn't start doing anything on the property for six months after getting plan approval, which was a four to six month process. So that added a year onto my holding costs with an $11,000 payment just right there. So that was a $120,000 swing that I didn't even account for on the front end that if I would have just went down to the city, they would have said, Hey, this particular area, you're on the earthquake fault line. You're going to have to not only bore down after getting us all the plans and us stamping it off and engineering and all that good stuff. But once the settling happens, because with the moving of, you know, the shifting of the tectonic plates, being in this area, you can't, after pouring your foundation, even start to build or touch that foundation or build up on the property for at least another six months. So that was just one little thing, right? Of just doing the due diligence on that kind of stuff. I could have done that a whole lot better. You said it. I could have definitely consulted with and brought in people. I'd rather own a slice of a watermelon than 100% of a grape. And it happened to be that this grape was like a raisin that was shriveling up really freaking fast. So that was uh, another big lesson of like, I, I went away from a lot of the stuff that had made me successful. And I don't want to say I was reading my own press clippings, or I was, you know, thinking I was too good for it. It was just one of those things where I just got too comfortable. And I didn't take the time that needed to be taken on the due diligence side, which, you know, is so, so critical 
when you want to have a very successful real estate deal, especially on the development side of things. It takes a lot of planning, a lot of due diligence, a lot of numbers crunching. And I treated this like a flip instead of a development. Wow, man. Well, I mean, that's a ton of good info. I think that really hits, you know, home for just about, you know, a lot of people that I've talked to is it really boils down to a lot of is the due diligence plays, you know, whether you're, you might not be at risk in Cal, you know, California with earthquakes, but there's a lot of people that have lost money on, on not doing their due diligence and checking mm-hmm. with the city about what they need to do. Um, part of that, it seems to be an awareness of when you're, when you're outside of your depth, you know, and, and yeah. that can be, that can be tricky, right? Because a lot of times things that are seem to be slightly outside of our depth, we go, ah, okay, I'm good with that. Right. Um, but you know, like in, from hearing your story, when I, like you mentioned it a few times and what just really rung true for me was that I've heard from really successful people that I've had downturns is that they stopped their process. You know, they had a process that led them up to, you know, um, and at that point, and then that something changed. And it's kind of like the funny thing that I think that happens a lot of times with uh, fighters. Like I used to do jujitsu and kickboxing and, and compete, uh, and martial arts, you know, you know, 10 years ago. Um, and, uh, it was funny to me that guys would get all the way to the championship fight and they'd be training the same way with the same crew. And they're like, all right, I'm fighting for the championship. I'm changing my diet. I'm going to get a whole new team. I'm going to do all this stuff that's different. I'm like, no, man, that's your process. That's what led you here. Yeah. Your, your process is who you are and, and what you're doing. And that's what the thing that you're fine tuning. Um, I just think it was really cool with, I mean, if anybody's watching the videos of this, that Matt has he has like this monster sheet that looks like all of the things that he tracks for like his daily routines, what he's doing with his journaling, his meditation. Um, and if, if you want to show that off, like, like that is what it looks like to be able to say like, am I keeping track of what am I doing every day that builds me out internally? So I have the right habits. So then like making the right decisions is on reflex for what I need to do. Um, but yeah, man, I mean, so, so when you're in that moment, you have like the, the downturn of it. I just want to touch on one thing. If anybody that's listening is, is in that place that you're in um, at that moment, you know, what would you, if you were talking to that person just directly, you know, what would you tell that person? Like, Hey, this is like the one thing or the top three things that you need to start doing like right now, like go to see somebody or go to vent to a mentor or, or what would that look like? Yeah. So the, the vulnerability piece is, I think, the toughest thing to do in that moment when you're down and yet probably the most critical uh, being that every time I've been in a, in a tough spot or situation when I'm 100% honest with myself and honest with the other people that I know can help me, uh, it allows me to get what I need when I'm not hundred percent honest with myself or with the people that can help me. Um, I ultimately can't get served at the highest level and course correct the way I need to course correct. So the vulnerability piece is, is really tough, especially when that wound is open, right? It's like throwing salt in the wound and yet ultimately, you know, it's also what cleans the wound. So um, that's one big thing that I you know, have told myself moving forward after reflecting and having a lot of these conversations of going, you know, if and when this happens again, because at the end of the day, it will. Like this isn't, if you continue to try and expand your life, you're going to to venture into uncharted territory. Like there's just going to be things that you don't know that you don't know, and you're going to face a mistake. You're going to have hardship. So it's when it does happen again, I want to make sure that I am as vulnerable and honest with myself as possible. And with the people that I know can help me because I know I have a lot of people in my world that do want to help me. And the only way they can do that is if I'm being honest with them and sharing 
what's going on. Uh, the other piece is just, just like what you said, don't get away from what works for you. Right? And the reason why I have my planner and I didn't fill out my planner for almost a month and a half in a month and a half. I mean, that was like a major, major funk for me. And I was justifying all the reasons why I wasn't doing it, but the, to do the things that work for you. And the reason I fill this planner out is not to stay organized with my day, which yes, it is. But more importantly, it's to stay hyper aware of when I'm showing up at my best and when I'm not. And when I'm showing up at my best to double down on what those things are. And when I'm not to scrap those things or to figure out how I can course correct as quickly as possible. So to stay hyper aware during those tough times requires a lot of discipline. And if you can stay committed to the things that work best for you, that's going to help you move through that situation a whole lot faster. So those are some of the things that I know um, I didn't do that I wish I would have done differently and I will do differently moving forward. And the last piece um, that I, I, I can think of was for me, it was um, info sponging. And info sponging for me is uh, to continue to read or listen to things that I know keep my mind on a positive track. And I was so stuck up here in my head that I wasn't leaving any room for new, inviting, exciting, you know, mind-bending, expanding information to come in and inspire me and keep me moving in the right direction. And instead, I was really drowning and, and swimming in my own sorrow and, you know, the, 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 the stuff that ultimately wasn't serving me at the end of the day. Yeah, man, I, I think that's awesome. It would, one thing that I found time and time again for most everybody is just simple awareness is curative of the problem. Most of the time it's because we're not even aware of what's going on with us or inside of others. We're just blind to it or just living out like a pattern in a way. So just taking the time to even write to say like, oh, this is a time. What I'm going to do is I'm going to be aware for 60 seconds today of like what's yeah. going on. That alone makes, makes huge impacts. And, um, and I don't know if you've ever if you've done this, this before when you were talking about, Hey, you know, like go find somebody, find somebody else in your life to go talk to. Um, one of, one of the things, you know, I think I've, people have always wanted to talk to me for some reason, uh, always wanted to open up to me throughout my life. And, and it happens to me all the time on airplanes. And there's something weird about an airplane that allows people to really share like a hundred percent of what's going on. <laughs> it's like so much better seemingly than counseling because you're with this person. You'll probably never see them again. Right. And then you can just share about like, here's what's really happening that in my life, that's not working for me or whatever, and be totally honest with it in an hour and a half and you're gone and you're not paying them. So it's like, there's no weird like counselor, like dynamic going on. Nobody's trying to psychoanalyze each other, but it's like, this is what's just happening. And people like have, I've had friends from airplanes for years from now because they just had that one conversation with me about like something that was happening in their life. And, and so um, the only reason I bring that up is that there's an idea that some people have is like, I, you know, I don't want everybody else to know that this is what's really going on with me because it's too painful for me to show up that vulnerable to sometimes people in life, which is the hardest because we have a whole persona. Sometimes we develop around that, that we don't want to sure. threaten with it. Yep. And I'm saying don't, doesn't have to be somebody, you know, you can just go up to anybody that's willing to like show up with you. And surprisingly, most people are, and just like start talking to them about like, you know, probably don't start with the, the heady, super deep stuff, but most people, you know, are, are cool with that. And if they're not, then you can just, you can find another person, right? Um, maybe, maybe make a great friend out of it. 
Um, so the world is, is probably more abundant than we all probably assume it is, you know, um, a lot of times that the, the lack of scarcities around money disappears after we get $40,000 plus per year. It doesn't really contribute much to happiness or maybe that number is up to 60, but it's something that's not nearly as high as you would think. And we think, Oh, I can't, I don't have enough friends. I don't have enough support. I don't have enough connections, but we're surrounded with a world of people and we're more connected to each other than we've ever been in the history uh, of what's available to us. But it does take action and to jumping out there and to actually have to go do it. Right. Um, and I just want to applaud you on that to saying that, you know, that looks like something that, uh, you have some strong habits on, which is, you know, when, when, when it hits the fan, they're like, all right, well, I'm going back to just what works for me and taking action on it. Um, and if I was just going to underline anything, you know, we typically have like, what's a lesson learned from today's episode. And that's something that, you know, I think I've learned from, from you today, Matt on, you know, just like the real power of saying, you know what, I'm really going to journal. And that's really like my go-to thing to could do with it out of your story. Like what would you say is like a takeaway item that you would want everybody to have? Oh man. One don't, uh, don't let stubbornness make a bad situation worse. And we can all be stubborn and justify why we're doing what we're doing or why we shouldn't do something or why we should keep doing something, but to really remove yourself as a third party outside looking in and go, what is the best thing for this situation to, to make this, you know, move in the direction that I want it to make. And oftentimes we have to remove ourselves from the situation to get that clarity and stubbornness can, you know, prolong some of those things. Uh, the other thing I would say is, you know, at the end of the day, like we all fall, there is, there is no linear, you know, path to where we want to go and you're going to fall down on that path, right? Like I fall down every day in my thinking or within my habits or, whatever, like I'm, I'm, none of us are perfect, right? We're all, we're all flawed. And what I've found is it's actually more about getting off course and getting and, and finding ways to 2.0, your mindset, your habits, your disciplines, your beliefs to get back on course that much quicker. Because if you can, you know, the fail forward, fail fast, fail often, uh, you look at the most successful people in the world and on the planet, they've often had some of the biggest failures because they're playing life at the biggest level. And they know that that's all part of the process. So I've really, that, that was one, one experience and many others along the way, looking back that has allowed me to change my relationship and the conversation that I have with failure and using it as a stepping stone or a launching pad to that next tier of thinking, of beliefs, of discipline, of deals, of whatever it may be, and not allowing that to hold you back and to shrink you into playing smaller and to going to the quote unquote safe spaces. And instead, as long as you reflect and use those lessons to your advantage, uh, you're going to unlock new levels of life that you've never been before and to actually celebrate those failures. So even though it can be hard in the moment, um, to keep that, you know, subconsciously implanted in my brain and hopefully for other people is to change the conversation you have or with yourself and with others around failure and know that by really stretching and expanding and going after the things that you really want to go after. Yeah, you're going to face some of those challenges and hardships and failures, but also knowing that those are pieces of your DNA that can never be taken away and that when used correctly will unlock the rich and fulfilling and wealthy and whatever kind of life that you want just by going after and having those experiences. 
That's awesome, man. And I just want to encourage everybody and underline for everybody is that, 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 uh, that man didn't start these uh, practices when he failed. Like he, he had, this was a practice that he started while he was being successful and that it was, he deviated from it. And that's what it was a part of what we could say, potentially a part of what happened in that scenario. And then he came back to it for part of his rebound. Right. So when we're thinking about like, how are we going to build wealth? Wealth starts with what habits am I building with myself today? Right. Mm -hmm. Of how I'm acting. And I think that's really cool with what you, you do with that, because that's how you build those other pieces of your life that give you the strength that are going to allow you to rebound. It was in that intentionality with that awareness, um, at least from, from what I can tell um, that allowed you to, to do that. So this is really something that we should, if you're not doing it right now, um, you know, something that I've been slacking on, I think I'm four days without doing it because uh, I've been, you know, quote unquote, so busy that I haven't been. So mm -hmm. this is a great slap in the face for me being like, yeah, man, I'm off course right now. I need to get back on course and get back to doing my, you know, my intentional awareness uh, on what I'm doing, Matt. So like, I really appreciate the, um, the wake up call for me this morning on that from hearing your story. I'm like, okay, this is great. Right on brother. Uh, and uh, with it, and I, I hope everybody else does. So if, if anybody wants to get a hold of you, um, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, they can all my, my social media handles the same on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. It's official Maddie, M-A-T-T-Y-A, official Maddie, or they can just email me Maddie at sixfigureflipper.com. That's the number sixfigureflipper.com, Maddie at sixfigureflipper.com. That's awesome. Um, and thanks. And um, yeah, of course, you know, you know, my name is Scott Royal Smith. I'm your host here at the Real Estate Nerds Podcast, the owner of Royal Legal Solutions, everything for tax, legal, uh, and real estate um, for every investor out there in the U.S. So I appreciate you guys for joining in today. Um, thank you for coming on the show and we'll all be in touch. And that's all for today. I'm your host, Scott Royal Smith, Esquire, attorney and longtime real estate investor, owner of Royal Legal Solutions the one-stop shop for tax, legal, and business advice exclusively for real estate investors. That's all for this Bad Beats episode. I'm your host, Scott Royal Smith with the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. Did you see yourself in any part of that story? I know I did. If you enjoyed the show, leave a review to help clue in the sleeping masses of what they need to know and what we all need reminders of. Do your good deed for the day. Thanks, and I'll see you again soon.